Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Today, as we begin week two of our current series, The Fellowship of the Gospel, Dr. Neufeld will introduce a message entitled, How the Gospel Advances. So let's begin by turning in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. The Church of Jesus Christ began on the day of Pentecost when at the evangelistic preaching of Peter, 3,000 people came to Christ and were baptized. This event is described in Acts chapter 2, and in that same chapter, in chapter 2 verse 47, Luke the historian tells us that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, not a single day passed without someone coming to faith. Two chapters later, in chapter 4, verse 4, we're told that the Jerusalem church had now grown to 5,000. In a short period of time, by Acts 8, the gospel of Jesus had already broken beyond the Jewish boundaries into the Samaritan world, and then in Acts chapter 10, two chapters later, the first Gentile converts are won to Christ as a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, along with a host of others, believes. By Acts 13, the first missionary team is sent out. By the time we get to Acts 16, the gospel has reached Europe, and by Acts 17, verse 6, the people in the Greek city of Thessalonica, not far from Philippi, are already arguing that the gospel of Jesus is turning the whole world upside down. Of course, the greater part of the world had not yet heard the gospel message, but it must have seemed that way, especially if you lived in Thessalonica. By the end of the first century, Christianity had grown so rapidly that it not only spread through all Palestine and Asia Minor and Europe, it was already deeply rooted in North Africa and was now establishing churches in as far away as India. There are two fascinating things to consider. First is the rapid expansion of early Christianity. Some estimates put it at about 40% growth rate every single year. Second are the conditions under which it expanded. Unlike Islam, which expanded through military conquest, Christianity expanded through evangelism, without armies or political power, and under intense persecution. From the stoning of Stephen in Jerusalem to the execution of all the apostles with the exception of John, it seems the most unlikely of all stories. If it were a movie, it would demand a title like Against All Odds. But this growth of the early church under persecution has led some people to believe that all it takes for the Christian faith to flourish is persecution. You know, I sometimes hear people in Canada saying, what we need to arouse this country is persecution. That's going to awaken the church. And to that I say, persecution has never been the magic bullet to arouse the church. I never pray for persecution. I don't think you should either. And I never hear the Bible telling us to pray that way. Furthermore, persecution doesn't always build up the church. Many of you know that some of the Muslim lands, especially the lands in North Africa and also Turkey, were all once Christian lands. There the Muslim advance, followed by later persecution, has decimated the church, to which the church has not recovered in over 1,000 years. No, persecution does not always arouse the church. It sometimes destroys the church in an area. And the reason for that are many. For instance, where the church is ethnically cleansed, there is in fact no church remaining. Where a church has been theologically weak or weak in zeal, there again, persecution often simply gives way to a massive apostasy, which may leave nothing but a shell or a form remaining. 
Of course, there have been times in which the church has emerged through a bloody trial more determined and stronger than before, and there have been places, like for instance China or maybe Iran, where the blood of the martyrs really is the seed of the church. But persecution by itself does no more than persecute the church. Now, persecution is not a force that magically causes the church to advance and grow. But in reading Philippians, we do read of the church growing in spite of and in persecution, and it is to that to which I want to give our attention. So today, I want to share how it is that the gospel advances. You know, this question is of great interest to believers. We know we should all be sharing our faith with others, and we know we should be praying for the lost. We know we should be sending missionaries. We, we know we should find ways to expand every single local church as much as possible. We know that the purity of our lives should make it easier for non-believers to believe. I mean, all of that's true, but I, I suspect almost all of that only asks and answers the questions of what we should be doing. And that's the point. Of course we have a role to play. It would be silly to deny that. But ours is a responsive role. What is the role that God plays? Or by what means does God use to further his gospel? How does he do it? See, I think the book of Philippians gives some of the answers. Let's read today's text, which is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak of the word without fear. Now, we've noted that the theme of Philippians is the partnership or the fellowship of the gospel. We've also noticed that every local church is a kind of partnership in which we partner with each other to further the gospel in the world. But up till now, we've been talking about what constitutes fellowship, and we've mentioned things like prayer and joy, unity of purpose and love. But we've not talked about what constitutes gospel advancement. Now, Paul mentions the word gospel six times in the first chapter of Philippians. He also implies the gospel another four times. In verse 14, he mentions speaking the word. And then in verses 15 and 17 and 18, he mentions preaching or proclaiming Christ, which means preaching the gospel of Christ. He means that the glad news of Jesus dying for our sins, buried and risen from the dead, and of the faith and trust we are to have in him leads to forgiveness of sins and the receiving of new life. That's the good news. That is the gospel. In other words, in 30 short verses, Paul mentions gospel proclamation 10 times. See, that's Paul's passion, and that's the Philippians' passion, and that's the partnership they have undertaken. Now, before diving right into this text, I want to step back for a moment and think about our context. I want to make application. In our country, massive changes have happened, and they have happened in the opposite direction from the one we find in Philippians. The gospel in our country is not powerfully reaching into the heart of our land. Rather, for some time now, the gospel has been in decline. In 1955, 60% of Canadians aged 15 and older attended church at least once a week. Today, that number is under 10%. We've lost half of our entire country in a little over 50 years. Now, as dismal as all that news of decline of the Christian faith sounds to us, let me suggest to you that, as one comedian once said, the news of my death has been greatly exaggerated. The large mainline denominations in our country have been decimated in recent years and are but a shadow of their former selves. 
Remember also that these are the same groups that have become known for denying the inerrancy of the Bible and also for denying major Christian doctrines, including the virgin birth, the full deity of Christ, his substitutionary death and resurrection. In short, they have denied the gospel. And that gospel denial happened not in the culture as a whole, but in the mainline churches. And it would seem that all the mainline churches succeeded in doing is to destroy the faith of those who attended their own churches and also destroy their own denominations in the process. What we have witnessed then is not how a secular culture wrecked havoc on the church, but how an apostatized church destroyed the faith of millions and killed their own churches and denominations in the process. In contrast, evangelical Bible-believing churches in the year 1931 comprised about 8% of the population. As of 2009, they comprised 11% of the population. I mean, not a revival by any stretch of the imagination, but not exactly dying and going away. Rather, making modest increases. Furthermore, if that number is made to include evangelical Catholics and evangelicals in some of the mainline churches, the number is much higher. And if we stop wringing our hands and begin to ask what God is doing, we might observe that if we deny him, he will deny us. We might also observe that if we cling to the word and do not budge, we can see that this day need not be different than what we read about in the Philippian letter. So I want us to read the Philippian text, not just to thank God for how the gospel advanced in the first century and to thank him for how the gospel has reached down to us, but to begin to imagine what might be happening if God again acted in power and brought the gospel deeply into the heart of our country. Can you imagine that? Or do you think the gospel is in prison, chained as Paul was, and that any advancement of gospel fellowship is a dream that has passed us by? If you want hope, join me as we come back with this very theme. I'm sure many of us have struggled over this question. What does it take for the gospel to advance in our own country? In an increasingly secular culture, it's easy to become discouraged in our efforts to win others to Christ. But here we're reminded that above all, we must understand the way God works to advance the gospel. And then we'll see better how to fit into his plan. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will help us see how Paul's situation was the perfect catalyst for the spreading of the gospel into a similarly secular culture, the Roman Empire. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, it's with great sincerity that the entire Back to the Bible ministry team wants to express its deep appreciation for the gracious support of all of our donors. But for this moment, we'd like to express our gratitude to those of you who support this ministry as monthly partners. In normal times, we recognize and value the important role you play. But in unprecedented times as these, the essential nature of your commitment to continue to teach the Bible and share the gospel could not be more obvious. So thank you. Psalm 46, in verses 1 to 7, it says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. On behalf of the entire ministry team, Dr. Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and the hosts of In Doubt, we extend our gratitude for your partnership in the gospel. And remember, all of our resources continue to be made available online at backtothebible.ca 
Or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425. The Philippian church has heard that Paul is in prison in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar's tribunal. When his trial ends, he will be released or immediately executed. They have sent one of their own, a man by the name of Epaphrodites, to journey from Greece to Rome with a gift that will cover all of Paul's physical needs while in prison. But no doubt the church in Philippi wanted to know how Paul was doing. Was there any news about the outcome of his trial? Did it look hopeful or should they prepare themselves for the worst? They were concerned and any news was welcome. And what about their partnership in the gospel, in which they were partnering together with Paul to take the gospel into the heart of the ancient Roman world? Were these plans still hopeful, or were they now falling apart? Does this setback, this unexpected Roman imprisonment, mean that their dreams for gospel advancement have also now been imprisoned? And so Paul writes them to ease their concerns. But And this is the fascinating thing about Paul's answer to them. For Paul, how he is personally doing is directly related to how the gospel is doing. Let's read verses 12 and 13 again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Let me put this in my own words. If it were not for the fact that Paul had gone to Jerusalem to bring a gift to Jewish Christians and then a riot had ensued in that city, leading to Paul's arrest and then to two years of long imprisonment without a trial and then in desperation, his appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, resulting in his prisoner transport to Rome and now being chained to a Roman guard, if it were not for this series of events, this present advancement of the gospel would never have happened. That's what he says. So I want you to notice two things. First, the imperial guard that Paul mentions would have been the elite special guard overseeing the emperor's safety. Now, as far as we know, this was a unit consisting of 9,000 men. They probably received an elite pay grade, had good pensions, were well recognized throughout the city. They were honored and respected. They were elite professionals, the best of the best, who had received the most important assignment of any Roman military man. They were charged, among other things, with guarding the personal safety of the emperor. The empire looked to them for peace, security, and signs of strength. Now, here's the second thing. This same guard were also often assigned to guarding key prisoners who were judged to be a risk to the empire. And it would seem the news about the advance of the Christian faith was seen as a problem, or perhaps it was seen as a potential problem of disrupting the harmony within the empire, causing riots in synagogues and in various towns. As the people in Thessalonica had said, these men were turning the world upside down. And since Paul was a key leader in this movement, the job of watching him would have fallen to the imperial guard. And says Paul, what this imperial guard or praetorium have heard from me as I was chained to one of them and then to another as the shift changed is that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now that phrase for Christ is literally in the Greek language in Christ. They heard that my imprisonment is in Christ. Now, I mention this because we should not be reading this to say that the entire imperial guard had come to know that this man was imprisoned because he believed in Christ. That is, he was imprisoned for his religious beliefs. They already knew that, and that would not have caused the buzz that it did. 
Rather, Paul uses the phrase, in Christ. The imperial guard knows his imprisonment is in Christ. Now, I take this to be a very similar phrase to the one that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, he says. Notice that there he does not call himself Rome's prisoner or a prisoner because of the evil designs of wicked men. No, he is Christ's prisoner. In other words, Christ has designed and directed his imprisonment for his purposes. Paul's imprisonment was Christ's idea. Now, of course, Paul would have shared the gospel with the guards he was chained to. They would have also watched his devotion and his prayer. They'd have watched as he met with the leaders in the church in Rome, and they would have heard him teaching their leaders. But they also heard from Paul that Christ was Lord and that he had directed all things according to his purposes and that he even directed the will of Caesar according to his purpose. This Christ had demonstrated he was Lord by rising from the dead, who had directed his servant Paul to this very prison cell in order that these men who guarded him might hear and know the forgiveness of sins. And consequently, the entire imperial guard was buzzing. This man thought that his Jesus directed the will of Caesar. And if Paul had not been arrested, this could never have happened. Christ was meticulously sovereign and directed his imprisonment so that the gospel would penetrate into their elite Roman unit to find its way into Caesar's own household. So the point is not that people are faithful in spite of persecution. The point is that if we have the eyes to see it, that the persecution itself, that the opposition that came against the church was not only orchestrated by God, but it was the means God used to advance the gospel. I mean, how else would the imperial guard, men for whom Christ died, hear this news? So how's Paul doing? Well, the Philippians want to know. Well, he's in fine form. The gospel is now, for the first time in history, becoming the subject of conversation right in the heart of the household of the emperor. Now then, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that the gospel advances in ways that may surprise and astonish us. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of God. Notice, I'm not saying that persecution is some magical force that awakened the gospel. As we've noticed, persecution sometimes decimates the church. No, rather, God ordains all things in keeping with his will so that even in hardships, new opportunities would arise. In other words, God orchestrated the hard things for the sake of his glory. Now, this is what God does. Of course, if Paul did not recognize that and instead simply complained or was fearful, asking God how he could have allowed this horrible event to transpire, well, in that case, nothing would have occurred. Paul needed the eyes of faith to understand that God directs all things to the purpose of his will. And that might be the application to our country, long before this amazing decline in gospel influence in this country. The Canadian church had become a kind of country club. One author called it the comfortable pew. If you wanted to do business in the 1950s, you went to church because it was there that you proved yourself trustworthy. Furthermore, many Canadian denominations had embraced a theology that denied essential Christian doctrine and practice and denied basic Christian morality. And this is the application. Let me read a quote from Dr. John Redekop. He said, the secularization of society, the fading of nominal Christianity in Canada, presents the true Christian church with a great opportunity. Given the public perception, 
the Christian church no longer functions in a legitimate role. It is now free to take up its biblically prophetic role. It is now free to be truly a separated church of which our Lord speaks of in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. Well, perhaps, although we have yet to see exactly how this prophetic role will get spelled out. However, we have noticed that the Canada that rejected the gospel now has one of the lowest birth rates in the world. This Canada is dying and may never come back. In its place, immigrants from around the world are flooding into our nation. If you're interested in missions, well, cities like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Ottawa have seen the mission field come to our door. And if we had the eyes to see it, we might see that some of these people groups are hungry for the gospel. What has happened in Canada might yet serve as the greatest advance of the gospel we have ever seen. Just like Paul's day when at the outset his imprisonment looked like a telling blow that might mark a great defeat for the gospel, it actually opened a door not possible before were it not for what happened in his imprisonment. That's what I'm praying for in our land as well. So, John, here's when we get down to the brass tacks. With all of these things that are happening in our world, they tend to discourage us. But what you're saying is something completely different. You're saying this discouragement is actually a way for God to use the church in a mighty way. I think we not only find that in Scripture, we find that historically as well. When the church has reached its lowest moments, those have been the times when God has spoken most effectively. And I want to say this to the church today. We must not become discouraged or allow simply somebody who tracks church attendance numbers to give us the idea, wow, there's going to be nothing left of the gospel. In fact, I think the days before us are as we've never seen them in this country. We can do missions right on our front door. And my encouragement to churches would as well be, find out ways in which you can begin to reach into the international community and find out how open so many different people groups are to the gospel. This could be our finest hour. Well, persecution is not an exclusive answer to effectively advancing the gospel. We can understand how God uses opposition to the gospel in ways that we might never have imagined. I hope that today's message has been an encouragement and a reminder that nothing in this world will ever stop God's plan to save and redeem humanity. Please listen again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues this series, The Fellowship of the Gospel, with a message entitled, Keep the Main Thing the Main Thing. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Dr. Neufeld's recent blog post concerning the COVID-19 pandemic, he challenged us to consider the words of Psalm 91. So let's reflect on just two sections of that psalm. Beginning at verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And verse 14, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You know, in the midst of uncertain times, trust in the God that loves his children beyond measure. For more information about Back to the Bible, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.